0: Shop Talk is brought to you by the Kosho School of Karate's premium martial arts training equipment. Frustrated with the low quality of the big manufacturers, the hassle and expense of custom made equipment, or the months-long delivery times offered by the Japanese brands, if your order ever arrives at all, Kosho offers makiwara, iron sandals, specialty punching bags, and other premium martial arts training equipment, all at great prices and great delivery times. Kosho equipment is guaranteed to be high quality and heavy duty, exactly what serious traditional martial artists demand. Contact the Kosho School of Karate for more information. Go to www.koshoequip.com or email kosho.schoolofkarate@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Kosho, premium martial arts training equipment for the serious martial artist. Welcome back to Chop Talk. I'm your host, Nate England. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, or any of your social media networks. Write a review and give us a five-star rating. Check out photos and links from this week's show on the Chop Talk Facebook page. And of course, share this podcast with everyone at your dojo. This is a small show without an advertising budget, so the only way for it to grow is for you to spread the word. This week, Don Sonny returns to discuss his career in law enforcement and how was influenced by his martial arts training. Mr. Sonny started his karate training in 1964 in Gary, Pennsylvania, under one of the best competitors of the era, artist Simmons. He then went on to train with another of the era's top competitors, James McLean. Don Sonny competed against and worked out with some of the top karate men of the time, including Dr. Mel Wise, Phil Keppel, Robert Trias, and he was also a close friend of the head of Matsubayashi Shorenru, Takeyoshi Nagamini. Don Sonny's martial arts training led him to join the Ohio Highway Patrol, which he discusses today. During his time as a trooper, he was selected for their newly founded Ranger Program, which is the predecessor of the modern-day SWAT team. He also became an instructor at the Highway Patrol's Academy. Mr. Sonny's undercover career started during his time with the Highway Patrol, and amazingly, his first undercover assignment was exactly 50 years ago at the Kent State Riots, also known by some as the Kent State Massacre which he discusses in today's show. His career continued as an agent for the Ohio Attorney General. We worked undercover on numerous investigations, focusing on organized crime, various mafia figures, and their assistance. He also assisted the FBI on a number of cases. Some of these investigations included people that were depicted in the 2011 film Kill the Irishman, starring Ray Stevenson, Vincent D'Onofrio, Val Kilmer, and Christopher Walken, and the book To Kill the Irishman by Rick Perello. If you'd like to know more about Don Sonny, you can contact him directly on Facebook or you can reach out through the Chop Talk Facebook page or send an email to England at gmail.com and I will get you in touch. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You worked for the Ohio Highway Patrol for quite a few years. Can you tell us how, how you got involved in that?
1: Sure. Uh how I got involved in it was uh, I was I was working in a foundry pouring metal. <laughs> <And> <laughs> okay. I was looking for other opportunities. And, yeah. and one Saturday, or, or maybe it was a weekday, we had off. I actually drove up to New York State and grabbed an application at a state police barracks, then stopped in Pennsylvania near my home and grabbed another one and then thought, well, I'll go over to Ohio too. Now, where I live is only 40 miles out of and Ohio. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't a great big giant deal. So right. I grabbed all three applications, went home, filled them out, and uh, sent them all in on the same day, you know, not knowing if I would ever hear anything. And I knew a guy that had joined Ohio State Patrol, uh, another resident of Erie, and I think I had talked to him before I did that. But Anyway, Ohio called first, and you, you had to go through physicals and backgrounds and all that stuff. And um, some way they accepted me, and before you know it, I was at their academy as a cadet. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and so that's how I got into it, and uh, it just seemed like a better deal than pouring metal all day long, wearing the biggest asbestos apron, and dick boots and gloves pouring metal at over a thousand degrees.
0: I can see that. Yep.
1: <laughs> so that's how I started that career. And
0: okay. uh,
1: the career had some unusual twists to it. Uh, yeah. when it was part of your training. You had one week that was boxing week. And uh, they, they would put mats down in the gym and everybody had to box two or three matches. And, uh, you know, you had to get in there and mix it up pretty good. And I, I think it was a, the way the trainers looked at it at that time, it was a test of courage and, uh, you know, how far you would go and, you know, could you take it and keep right. going. And so it was a, an important part of the, the training at that period. Mm. Your headgear, your. Good sized gloves, probably twelve ounces or something and um uh, but you'd get in there and just slug it out <laughs> and uh and it was a big deal. everybody loved it in ways uh but uh I remember I was called up to uh to box and uh and they called two cadets out, You put the gear on and you entered the ring and uh by then, I think most of the class knew I had practiced karate, and most of them knew that I had received a black belt just prior to going to the academy. Okay. I think a month month prior. Mm. But I remember as we started to box, uh, this guy's coming at me, and most people would just stand and swing away. Well, I saw an opening, and immediately... <laughs> Through a spinning back kick, right <laughs> in his head. So, so it, it it didn't hit real hard. I, I threw it kind of tournament style.
0: Right. Okay. But
1: but it went right in there. Bang. You know. And uh, then then they no 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 you can't kick. I I know I know I'm sorry. Yeah. You know. And uh, so they, we commenced the boxing again. And I swept. Uh, foot swept the guy and took him down and was going to punch him on the ground <laughs> yelling, no 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 <laughs> you know and, and I, I I can't help it
0: you know right
1: you know just, yeah yeah I've been fighting for five years this way twice a week you know I, I just I'm sorry right and uh, they stopped that match and I never had to box again <laughs> <laughs> but I I think that expose some of the staff. It must have become a, a topic afterwards. Yeah. Because I definitely was the first black belt that ever joined the patrol. Okay. And, uh,
0: there, you know, like I
1: said, this is in the late 60s, so uh, there weren't a lot of karate people around. And, no. uh You know, and then it got the, the attention of the staff And I remember one time we were working cuffing procedures, and we had a sergeant there that was the instructor that day. And he was, you know, you had to stand against the wall, and I put your left hand back, put your right hand back, and your fellow cadet, whoever was acting as the police officer, would place you in the cuffs. And we were actually practicing those techniques. Hmm. And I said something to somebody if he did that to me, I'd kick him right in the head. Well, they went and told him Sarge about it. He comes over and he's against the wall, and uh, he said, "I, you saying that in this position with your feet spread, you'll kick me in the head?" And I said, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I was a pretty good kicker. Yeah. I, I wasn't a Bill Wallace, but I was a pretty good kicker." Mm. And uh, he had me spread out there, and he. Okay, bring your left hand back, and uh, I think I I knew he'd be looking left, so I went up with my right foot and uh, tapped him in the head, you know. <laughs> and so uh, that got some attention too about karate and, and yeah, in the academy and with the staff down there. One day when I was stationed in Warren, uh, I I got a. I went, I think, to see my district captain, and he told me that people at the academy wanted me to come down and demonstrate self-defense and how your karate stuff would work at that. And uh, they're real interested, and they would love you to come down and do a demo that they could evaluate the value of martial arts as uh, a self-defense for law enforcement officers. Okay. so, I, of course, accepted. Uh, I was honored by the request, and I was nervous as hell, but I drove down one morning. It was a two, two-and-a-half-hour ride to the academy. I drove down to give this demonstration. Uh, I'm thinking, like, uh, two of the academy instructors are going to take me to the gym and make me do things, you know. Right. And uh, tell them what my thoughts were on this stuff. Well, I get there, and the, the the top guy in the highway patrol's the colonel, and then under him is one lieutenant colonel, and then a group of majors. I'm thinking there might have been a dozen of them in that area. Wow, that's the top echelon. Every one of them walked into the gym. Wow, and sat down to watch this demo. And I remember, and I'm my knees were knocking. <laughs> You know, I'm. I i was not that long ago. I was a cadet,
2: right? You know,
1: and, and I, you know, you're 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 almost truly afraid of some of these guys. Sure. And some, of, yeah, some of them you've heard stories about about how tough they are, and you know, and but they were all there along with the academy staff, and I had to do a demonstration. And this is where I, I really thank Mr. McLean, because we worked a lot of chokeholds, arm bars, wrist uh, manipulation to freeze an opponent. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of that stuff in his dojo, and mm-hmm. I, I realized early on when I first was requested that I can't go down there and show them how to spar. Right. We're not going to train people how to. You know, hooking some hooking somebody in the head,
0: right? You know,
1: and then leg sweep them and beat them on the ground. Where well, that that's they're not looking for that. Sure. So I concentrated mostly on the aspects of being able to restrain and control someone being aggressive. Mm. I talked a lot about what I felt was distancing how to stay at a safe distance. I remember I used to call it a step and a punch. You had to be out of range of a step and a punch. Okay. You know Yeah, you know, and, and that's if you're addressing uh, someone, you, you, you maintain that range. You didn't get inside of it or you were subject to a sucker punch.
0: Right. They could so, just hit you at any time. You'd surprise yeah. you and then you're, you're down and they've got your gun and that's it. Right.
1: Right. So we even worked on things of that nature. What I call my step and punch rule, and uh, you know, and uh, and how to approach them, how to address them, but then even more is how to engage them if they became physically aggressive, mm. and how to restrain them, and how to uh, you know things of that nature. So they liked it. They liked what they yeah. saw. Yeah. I got a lot of. You know, people, a lot of great feedback that day. I went back to the post, not knowing what they were going to do. We did that ranger training, and then immediately after that, I was told that I was going to the academy as uh, chief self-defense instructor. Wow.
2: This is Mike Tarvin of Tarvin Plumbing Company. You may have heard me answering questions as a plumbing expert on The Gary Sullivan Show over the years. I'm here today to make you aware of our company. We perform plumbing repairs of all types. We've been in business since 1907 through five generations of family members. That's 109 years of providing top quality workmanship and outstanding service. If you're having issues with leaks, stoppages, water heaters, fixtures, or piping, we're here to help. Spring rains may be taking a toll on your sump pump. To help out, ask us about our summer sump pump special. We can inspect the existing pump and replace it if necessary for a special summer price. We can also inspect or add a battery backup and other devices for extra security to keep you high and dry. We offer you peace of mind for your plumbing system with reliable, trustworthy service backed by years of experience. Tarvin Plumbing is a Cincinnati company with an appreciation of the wide range of plumbing challenges this city offers so if you or someone you know has a need for plumbing repairs of any type please think of us at tarvin plumbing you can reach us at tarvinplumbing.com that's tarvinplumbing.com thank you
1: right after the kent state thing
2: i was approached
1: and the patrol had decided to uh, start what for lack of a better term i'd say probably one of the best first SWAT units in law enforcement Hmm and uh it was it was primarily centered on on demonstrations and things like that of how to stop them, how to remove leaders from inside of a group of demonstrators and they were practicing this, but they they picked the toughest guys they could throughout the state to uh, be members of this thing that was called the Rangers okay and uh, I was approached by a lieutenant that was in charge of it, and he told me he wanted me to help train them. So we spent a few months going around each district. There's 10 of them and doing a week's training with people. And I was able to put together that whole program as far as hand-to-hand combat and stuff. That was my area. This was, I graduated from the academy in 70, early 70, uh, entered it in 69. Hmm. And, uh, after I graduated, I was stationed in Warren, Ohio, which is northeastern Ohio. And you're assigned a coach for several months, and back then you actually had to live on the post until they told you you could go rent a house or an apartment. Oh, wow! And you, yeah, you live there. I mean, you just sort of worked almost around the clock, except for sleeping. And you had a coach that you spent eight hours a day with, and. You started off, you rode with him, and then you drove him around. Mm. But I had—I uh, went through that, and uh, being 1970, this is when there was a lot of Vietnam demonstrations going along, anti-Vietnam, people that didn't like our involvement there.
2: Right. There
1: were a lot of riots on campuses.
2: Mm. A
1: lot of those campuses, of course, being... Sure. You know, um, Ohio, like Ohio State. You know, it's a state-run sure. university. So you know, the, the patrol did have jurisdiction on the state-run campuses, mm. and there was just getting to be a lot of disturbances, and and some of those were getting, um, I don't want to say, you know, maybe yeah, maybe out of hand, because I mean that, that there were buildings burnt down, windows broke, a lot of destruction. Property right. damage and things of that nature happening. And of course, the patrol would have to respond to those. Mm-hmm. So I'm up at Warren, and uh, I think I had been to one of those situations. And uh, it was uh, the vice president was in Ohio speaking, and, and I remember uh, I had to go there that night. There were a lot of demonstrators around, and I was basically keeping them at bay, letting him finish his speech and move on. Mm. But uh, it was shortly after that uh, that Kent State happened.
0: Oh, and, yeah. Uh,
1: riots, riots broke out at that university.
0: Now I used to have a girlfriend up at Kent State, so I'm I'm, I'm curious because I remember that's a that's a big deal up there. I mean, a few people got got shot and and killed up there.
1: Four of them got killed. There were I think about twelve or maybe a few more than that wounded. Um, the uh, the National Guard was there along with a patrol, and something happened, and a National Guard man fired. And you can imagine being in a line like that if you're uh, there to, uh, you know, enforce order. And right. all of a sudden you hear a gunshot. you don't know where it came from. Well,
0: right. numerous
1: other guardsmen, and I'll say unfortunately, followed suit and fired into the demonstrating crowd. Wow. And several people were killed. And, uh, you know, it. Was, I still feel it was a very tragic thing that happened that day. Yeah, but, of course. Uh, but I, I understand in ways too, because nobody had any type of riot training back in those days. You're taking kids in the National Guard, the same age as the students, giving them loaded guns, and telling them you're going to go out there and force order. Right. Now, you know. You know. Uh, even the patrol really didn't have riot training at that period. Right. We were sent over there. No real riot gear or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, the night before uh, the, 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 that incident, the shooting happened on May 4th, 1970. I think it was early the day before that, on May 3rd. I came on post to do my shift, and I was told to go to the captain's office. And I went over and he was sitting with our district plainclothes officer and uh, they explained to me, you know, you know, this, there's a lot going on at Kent State right now. They're mm-hmm. starting to demonstrate, yes. And uh, they explained to me, you know, basically what law enforcement's police were in relation to that. And that was that there were outside forces instigating these demonstrations. Okay. Some of them some of them communist organizations. The one was called the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and things of that nature. Mm. And they said, what we really want to do is identify those leaders and determine how they're instigating these behaviors that the demonstrators are doing. Mm. And I sat and listened to them, yep, so we're sending you and another trooper over there as civilians,
0: Basically oh,
1: undercover, okay, yeah, to to figure that figure out who's leading these things, yeah, and that's all you gotta do is identify them, don't do anything, but identify the ringleaders for us, mm-hmm. that was the night before,
0: oh wow, and um,
1: the day before, well, we got over there, and that night. The riots started downtown, they burned all the trash cans, they marched on the campus, they burned down the ROTC building and a few other things. Um we never found any <laughs> anybody telling people what they were gonna do or how they were gonna do it. It seemed like a spontaneous okay. for lack of a better term, mob action.
0: Right. But we
1: followed along and uh, you know, watched this stuff, and we were trying to figure out if there were any real leaders there. Well, then it started. It went all night and into the next day. And I, I don't remember exactly what time it was, but the next day the students were demonstrating in this common area. And uh, there was a lot of demonstrators flanked by the patrol and by the National guard. And that's when the shootings occurred.
0: Now, and, were, uh, of course, were, were, you were, were you out there this whole time? Were you out there this whole time at night and then during the day, while well, all the demonstrations and all the burnings, you, you were actually there for that? Yes. Wow. Yes.
1: Now, when the shootings start, I will admit, me and my partner, started. we, we cleared out as quickly as we could. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, I mean, you're you're out there. Yeah, you're out there in a group of people that's being shot on. You're seeing people fall, and uh, I, I can't remember exactly which building, but I remember we scooted around the edge of a building and thought, "Let's get out of here." And we took off, and then later, um, the patrol had a uh, temporary headquarters set up in a trailer there. We actually made our way to that trailer. What do you want us to do now? They were clearing the campus martial art. Law had been declared. Mm. And at that point, we were told to go back to our post. I remember I went back to my post, walked in, my lieutenant said, get your uniform on, you're going to Kent State. <laughs> <laughs> and I went right back then as a uniformed officer. Wow. But yeah, I was there. That was that was May 4th, 1970. Still, it was... Just a, a terrible thing that had to happen, that happened anyway.
0: Right. So, But now, it's definitely part of our, our history. It is. Looking for a way to gain an edge on the competition? Want to give your body some much-needed relief and relaxation? Try Medical Resort ATAC, Okinawa's specialist in sports therapy and wellness care. ATAC offers customizable massage therapy. Try their oxygen chamber to increase metabolism, reduce fatigue, and promote faster recovery from injuries. Take their stretching course to increase flexibility and release muscle fatigue. ATAC also offers special courses in static and thermal therapy, foot therapy, and head therapy. Or try a session of ATAC's latest offering, acupuncture therapy, with their fully licensed acupuncture therapist. Want to find out more? ATAC is open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Stop into their center located at one 2830 Oroku in Naha City, Okinawa. Call 098-859-1890 or visit them on the web at www.a-tac.net. That's www.a-tac.net. Staff is fluent in English, Portuguese, Spanish, and Japanese.
1: I went back to the post, not knowing what they were going to do. We did that ranger training, and then immediately after that, I was told that I was going to the academy as uh, chief self-defense instructor. Wow! So I—I I, I think at that point I, I had less than a year on.
0: Okay, so you're—you're—you're—you uh, uh, you're, you're, got to be a young kid. You're still in your early twenties at, at this point, and now you're the. You know, you're in charge of the self defense program. Uh, right. Wow.
1: Right. Yep. And uh, I've been 22 then. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they told me that. I remember I went down and met the, the commandant who was a captain at the academy. And he told me, I can't transfer you here because we have kind of an unwritten rule that no one can instruct here. Is a is a member of the staff until they have four years of service. Mm. Well, I thought, okay, you know, yeah. so I can't be here. He said, you know what we could do, though? I could assign you to the Delaware Post, which is the first post north of the academy. Okay. And you could be you could be here on temporary assignment. Well, I spent almost all of my time <laughs> for the next several years at the academy. I was there on temporary assignment. Mm. And uh you know, and um like the the post commander at the Delaware Post, if I'd stop in there, he'd tell me, You're not a member of this post
0: <laughs> What are you doing here? You, get out you of the academy. That. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. At times they would have something where everybody had to report to the post. So I, I would honor those <laughs> and I'd show up and he'd look at me and go, What are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> you go. you're not a member of this post yes i am you know? right but no you're not leave right yeah because i i, I did spend a little time at the post and once in a while we'd have a long break in between cadet classes or something and I, i'd go up and work traffic and do the things that all the other patrolmen did so but that was little time and sometimes far and few between before I'd get a chance to get up there and work normal patrol duties. I was pretty much an academy instructor.
0: Now, how did you, when you're putting together the self-defense program, uh, sort of pull apart? So, you know, yeah, you're not going to be able to teach these guys to do a, a hook-heel kick, and you're probably not going to be teaching them to run a, a kata for competition. So, uh, you know, what, what type of things were you uh, teaching these guys uh, for what they were going out uh, to do, which is basically arrest arrest people and detain people.
1: Right, right. Well, like, I, I, you know, I was trying to teach them how to control a situation and how to control somebody that's actually being physically aggressive, how to move that you ended up in an advantageous position. You could take them down or... Uh, you know, some way force them into move. If you wanted them to walk, we and again, some of this stuff comes from Mister McLean. Mm-hmm. Uh, what holds called come-alongs, <laughs> sure. Which you manipulate a person's wrist so they want to walk with you. Right. You know, they're usually up on their toes. They're in pretty good pain, and and they'll just run along beside you here, trying to trying to head them towards a certain direction. So Mm -hmm. we worked the application of come-alongs. We worked worked against a lot of different situations, but like I said, the goal was to restrain and control the individual. Right. uh, You know, instead of punch them out. Right. You you know, it was, uh, how do you get control of this situation? Right. And that's what we primarily worked on that type of thing. I did teach them how to properly punch. Okay, but it was from a more or less a hands up boxing stance instead of the karate punch because I knew I, you know, it probably took me six months to learn how to properly throw a, a reverse punch or a sake zuki, and uh, I knew I wouldn't have the time to invest in that. So you know, you just try right. to teach them a little bit like how how the bone structure works in the arms and stuff and uh, which knuckles you're best to hit with that uh, you're not going to break your hand. And sure. If you do end up
0: if you do end
1: up exchanging blows with somebody.
0: Right. Did now did any of these guys get get excited and want to learn more and and wind up learning the actual martial arts for you uh from you or did they just did everybody yeah. pretty much stay yeah. with uh yeah
1: right i had a dojo back in delaware ohio at that time and i did have troopers that came and joined and uh i know one of them after i left the patrol ended up as the chief self-defense instructor which i always felt good about yeah he ended up there teaching and uh but yeah well i had several patrolmen that came to the dojo and had trained and worked out and some of them there for a few years, and, you know, but good people. You know, it was a good time.
0: Sure. Now, now you mentioned that you were, uh, when you were at Kent State, that was one of your first assignments and you were undercover, but did you did you do any more undercover after that, after you were, after Kent State or after you were yeah. an instructor in the academy? I did extensive undercover work. Um, oh, really?
1: After I left the highway patrol, I joined the attorney general's office. And I think part of that was I was still young. I wanted to go play cops and robbers. And, and like I said, I would become a teacher. You know, I was, right. I was academy staff. I wasn't, you know, and I think I still yearn for more exciting life and things of that nature. So I joined the attorney general's office and the attorney general had a division that supplied expert personnel to departments when they needed it. For example, if a real small town had a murder, they didn't have people trained in crime scene stuff, some of it very technical scientific stuff. Sure. Well, the AG's office had those people and they would send them down to work the crime scene and do things of that nature. Mm. Uh, So they had a division that did that. They also had a division that did undercover narcotics works. A lot of small towns didn't have personnel that could do that. Right. Everybody knew every cop in town. You you couldn't go into a bar at night and say, I'm now undercover. Everybody would know who you were. (laughs) The attorney general would send a couple people down there, assign them. Uh, to go down and help this department and uh, ferret out what was going going on in one of those spots that was being questioned. Mm. Another one was an organized crime unit, and they also had a, a public official corruption unit where if a local politician was uh, under suspicion for conducting criminal activity, they would supply the people that would actually go in and do that investigation, mm. and uh, so the, those were the units that they had at the AG's office. And uh, I joined actually as an undercover organized crime agent.
0: Okay, and uh,
1: spent you know a considerable amount of time helping invest bigger departments, smaller departments, investigating the influence of organized crime in their
0: towns so, so uh, i I uh, are there any stories that you can tell from uh from those undercover days or are they all kind of under- uh, top secret no, they're not top secret at this point i mean uh
1: you know as far as using my martial arts tying know what we're talking about, I had several instances where it came in very handy uh because a lot of the type of people that we were associating with while undercover are very quick to get physical and attack the mm. one. And, uh, I can think of at least four or five of those situations where, uh, you know, you'd be in a, in a bar or someplace with people. And, uh, All of a sudden, (laughs) sometimes you couldn't understand why, but somebody was swinging on you.
0: Oh, yeah. And,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, fortunately, I don't think I ever had to do a whole lot of karate. It usually was only a matter of a couple seconds, Uh but my training definitely played a giant part in that. I was able to neutralize that or take the guy out very quickly. A lot Uh of times, nobody even realized that I trained in martial arts, Mm -hmm. but... You know, you could take that guy down and out right now, and uh, you know, avoid that, avoid uh, his attack. And I, I had several of those situations. I, I, I'll tell you, a, kind of a funny one. To me, it's funny now. Yeah, I was, I was in a uh, like a casino environment one night, and I was shooting craps, and standing next to me was this guy. And he was, I was shooting, and he was betting against me all night and ribbing me. Mm. And you you can bet either for the shooter or basically against the shooter. You can bet for the house or the shooter. Mm. And if I was shooting the dice, he bet for the house. And he's getting real smart with me all night long. And uh, (laughs) I remember I went broke. (laughs) (laughs) I ran out of money. Yeah. He was betting the right way. He was making money on me.
0: Right.
1: And uh, he had uh, a few thousand dollars worth of chips in his rack. And so I reached over and grabbed like 50 bucks and said, you owe me. And he started laughing and I'm standing there. And the next time I get the dice, as I go to shoot, he elbows me. So I elbow him back. And uh, now he's getting physical with his junk and he's sort of pushing me around. And, uh, but he's doing it in kind of a good natured way. He's laughing while he's doing it. Yeah. And, uh, finally I elbow him back and all of a sudden we're kind of squared off and I think, you know, this guy's really want to fight. Yeah. And everybody, everybody started yelling and, uh, They started calling him by his first name. And all of a sudden, I realized I'm getting into it with one of the best-known mafia hitmen in the country. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He had one of those first names that wasn't that common. Yeah. And people... people started scrambling towards us and they're trying to keep us apart and they're yelling at him no no and they're using his first name and I thought oh shit (laughs) you know you know this this was a bad move because I gotta walk out of here tonight and you don't know what this guy will do right right but it ended up we laughed and laughed and laughed and ended up that you know I walked out with any, any crazy incidents that's happening but you know uh but I realized who I was messing with. Like, you got to admit, you know, <laughs> you know, what am I doing here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That. It, it, yeah. Because you don't know what's going to happen with a guy like that. I mean, okay, you're you're undercover and you're going back to the station, but you got to get back to the station, and uh, right. And anything could happen. That you know, he could.
1: Oh. Yeah, he could come outside and shoot you and, and smile. You know, I mean, you wouldn't think a thing of it, but, uh, but,
2: you know, like I said,
1: it didn't end up that way. It ended that we were laughing with each other, probably tapping each other on the back and joking. (laughs) Okay. You
0: You made a new buddy. uh, Probably
1: a little, yeah. A little lucky that six people jumped in though at that one point, because I think we were a few seconds away from going, going at it.
0: let me let me ask you this so you were you know you're working as undercover officer which is you know it's 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 a special unit and and not everybody not everybody can do that can go into these places and pretend to be somebody else and notice all these things what was it that made you successful as an undercover officer was it your personality was it was it your martial arts training? What what was it that let you do this job that most people couldn't do?
1: I think my martial arts training gave me a lot of confidence. It really helped. And my approach, in fact, I just heard from a, a, an FBI guy that did a lot of undercover that had worked with me, just uh, wrote something on Facebook not too long ago about My approach to undercover, and he starts saying how unorthodox I was. I don't think I really thought about that that much, Mm. but a lot of investigators work through informants. They need somebody that can take them into situations, or even that they send into situations that they won't even go into Mm. and record or whatever. That's a lot of it. But my approach to in these investigations, was to go in. I didn't rely on an informant. Mm. Uh, if they told me this activity's taking place at this bar, I went there. Yeah. I went there and figured out a way to get next to the people that were being suspected. Mm-hmm. And probably uh, well, because of my confidence for martial arts and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. I was able to pull that off without. Always being scared to death of uh, getting hurt real bad, right? Because truthfully, you did most of that unarmed. You didn't carry a gun, right? You went, yeah. You just went in, hung around, tried to meet people, and uh, you know you uh, you basically infiltrated. And then gathered your information, and then mostly they, uh, someone would use your information. The, the regular law enforcement officer would use your information oftentimes to get search warrants or execute raids, things of that nature. Okay. And, you know, and they wouldn't even try to protect you when they did that, you know, to some extent. You know, <laughs> you know a lot of times they try not to burn your cover. Well, so would do
0: So that they, that the, the people there, if they ran into you in another situation, they just, they thought you were one of the guys that was there and got busted. You know, you weren't, Yeah, you yeah, didn't, you yeah, didn't pull out a badge at some point and you'll freeze. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I went to jail numerous times and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, got out with the boys and, you know, right. But, uh, yeah, that was just, that was just the way it worked. And, uh, Um, So, you know, that's that's how a lot of it worked But I guess, you know, a lot of people thought my approach was unorthodox And that I didn't want an informant Hey
0: everyone, like the show? Enjoy hearing interviews with martial artists from around the world? And share it with a friend, family member, co-worker, everyone at your dojo, your fellow karate cop. Ka. You can find new episodes every Sunday at choptalk.podbean.com. That's choptalk.podbean.com. And don't forget to like the show on Facebook. Thanks.
1: We have time for uh, a quick story about one of my infiltrations but i'll try to make it quick if you want to hear it
0: i have plenty of time it doesn't even have to be quick just go ahead and tell it okay
1: there was a bar and several very well-known organized crime members were known to be at this bar at different times and one of them owned and uh There was even a guy that I met in there one time who was on the top ten wanted list. Wow. But uh, anyway, uh, they sent me to this bar, and with my usual approach, I walked in, took a seat at the bar one night, and uh, started figuring out, you know, what's going on in here. And The bar was divided by a little half wall from a dining room. And in the dining room at night, nobody went in there. It was empty except for the table in the very back. And at that back table, these organized crime figures would come in, and they'd go to that table where the owner sat. Hmm. Well, you couldn't walk back there. You had no reason to go back there into the dining room. So I'm sitting there thinking and thinking and thinking, like, you know, how do I make any headway here, you know? Because these guys, they don't even talk to anybody. They walk in, they walk back, and they sit down with the guy. Right. And, uh, sometimes there'd be eight of them back there. And they're people that you knew. Mm. People that you'd seen shots of. People that were fairly famous. Mm. Um, if you, uh, ever saw a movie to kill an Irishman, some of them were people that were characters in that movie.
0: Mm. Wow. And,
1: yeah. And, uh, He'd sit there, and I'm thinking, like, how can I get back there? So one day, the old man gets up, and he walks to the restroom in the bar area. And I thought, well, I'll go in there and try to strike up a little conversation. So I get up from my bar stool, head down the hall, and into the boys' room. Well, there's one stall in there, and he's already got himself locked inside the stall. He's sitting in there. So I stand at the urinal for an awful long time <laughs> and I wash my hands for an awful long time and he's not coming out. So I think I got to get out of here. Right. This is going to look fishy. Right. So I start walking up the hall back to the bar and I'm looking at the bar and stuff. And I got a feeling. I don't think anybody's paying any attention. I'm going to go back in there now. Like I just came in. Mm. So I just turn around in the hall and headed back into the boys room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what I did, I thought, I'm going to pretend like I'm trying to get into the stall. Okay. And I, that way I can wait for him to vacate. It and we can have a few words. I can say hi. You know?
0: Yeah, so yeah, and okay. I
1: pushed the door. In. I pushed the door, in, uh, and I figured it would have been locked, but it wasn't. <laughs> and the door swung the door swung in and he was leaning forward right at that time you know reaching down behind him mm-hmm. taking care of business and the door hit him right in the head <laughs> oh, i mean shit. hard enough that it cut him oh, hard God. enough that it yeah yeah he's bleeding he's got oh, just a little nick above his eyebrow <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and he's bleeding and he comes out of there And he's yelling at me, you know, you know, you know, what, what the hell you do? You know, you, you dumbass. And, you know, and I'm going, man, I didn't know you were in there, buddy. I'm so sorry. You know, and he's going, you stupid son of a bitch, you know, why would you do this? And I said, I had no idea you were in there, you know, and, uh, he, we end up wetting some paper towels and he's holding them on this, where he's bleeding on above his eyebrow and, we start walking back into the bar, and I'm telling them, you know, we should tell the owner what happened here. And if you need any help, I'll take care of it. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do this. Yeah. Uh, let's get the owner. And he's telling me, I am the owner. <laughs> You're done son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, man, I am so sorry. Yeah. And uh, so we get up there, and we turn into the dining room. And there's a, a group probably of six people back there two of them are notorious wicked people mm. that probably enjoy giving people pain mm. and they're standing there and I'm thinking I'm going to get killed.
0: Yeah. yeah. But
1: we walk over and as we're walking there, the old man, they're looking at the old man. He has this wet napkin on his forehead and they're going, what the hell happened to you? And he said to them, this guy hit me in the head with the toilet. <laughs> And they broke out laughing. They're laughing as, far as they can laugh. He did what? He hit you in the head with the toilet, and this guy's going, "Yeah, he hit me right there in the head with the toilet. It's bleeding." <laughs> and. I just I, I stood there and I I'm giving them a business card that has my cover information on it. Yeah. If there's any problems you call me if you have to go to the hospital, you know, I'll take care of this. Right, right. I said, I'm so sorry, but but I'm over there now. I'm at
0: right. I'm at the dining
1: room table with all the boys, with all the wise guys. Right. And um uh, yeah. So so uh anyway, uh, it went on there for, for a little bit and I finally excused myself and left the establishment and walked back in the next night and walked right into the dining room. (laughs) (laughs) I think I bought a few rounds of drinks before I left that night. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, I kept, you know, let me buy you guys a round. I'm so sorry this happened. And uh, they were happy to take the rounds. Next night, I walked in, walked right into the dining room, waved over at the barmaid. I said, "Bring us around," and <laughs> she brought around the shots to the table. And from that point on, I was
0: welcome at back table. That is crazy. So, you, isn't that so? You, <laughs> what a bizarre <laughs> way to get where you wanted wanted to be. I mean, and it, at that point, where you were in, were they talking about things that you wanted to hear? uh while you were over there, or was yeah. it just you were close enough yeah. to see who was there?,
1: yeah. they talked very openly about a lot of their activities wow and uh, the, the the two guys that I mentioned were famous as being very evil. You know, in fact they're both doing life without parole at this time sure but uh but uh. Yeah, they would sit there and talk about it. What they they were actually what they would do is shake down drug dealers. That's how they were making their money. They would find out where some guy was dealing coke, walk into the bar, and, and introduce themselves. If people knew their names, you know, if you lived in that town, you knew who they were. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would tell you, "We hear you're dealing drugs out of here." And of course, people would deny it. Right. And what they would do is say, no, you got this all wrong. We're here to help you. You know, we, we're here. We want you to have all the success in the world. I hope you make millions of dollars in here, buddy. And they'd keep talking to the guy. Would keep they'd get the guy relaxed, and then they would tell him, you know, just keep going. You know, it's no problem. Just every Monday, show up at this bar with $500, and we're going to kill you and your family. <laughs> That was their game. That was their game.
2: Wow. And
1: uh they shut down drug dealers and if that guy wanted to continue dealing, he showed up and paid his five hundred a week.
0: Because what are the drug dealers gonna do? Go to the cops and say this mafia guy threatened me while I was selling cocaine? Yeah. They can't go to anybody.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, they were an easy target to extort. That's for sure, you know. And and nobody would go spill on these two guys anyway. Right. Right. Yeah, you know. And they, I mean, you knew better than that, you know. So yeah, you you didn't have a whole lot of choices at that point. Wow. So, but yeah, they'd sit and talk openly about this job, and and they would think it was so funny when. The, 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 when the guy would get so scared, and he, he'd be shaken and be himself, and they would tell about it, you know, and laugh like hell, you know. So that's the story. Of one of the infiltrations oh, I did undercover. Man, I just thought of one other, probably a point of interest uh, that I didn't mention. After we were talking about all the undercover stuff, but I remember the. The last time I competed, Nate, uh, I went to a tournament in Cleveland and, uh, competed up there. And, uh, it was probably about a week later. I, I was working, as I said, I worked for the state, but I was actually on loan to the FBI one time for a year and a half. Wow. And, uh, and during that, and it was at, at that time and, uh, The FBI guy that was supervising me called me in and said, uh, I heard you competed at some karate things. And I went, yeah. And he went, what name did you compete under? I said, my name. And he goes, that's got to stop now. (laughs) He said,
2: and, you know, this was
1: something I had always done, maybe not as frequently at that point than I had when I was younger, but, right. you know, I mean, every so often I really got the urge to go compete again. And he told me, no, nah, we, can't, we can't take that chance that you're competing under a an name, and there could be somebody in the crowd or whatever, or some other student that's looking gone. That's not his name. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I remember that guy asking me, like, how many people know that you were a state cop with these things? Well, there were a lot of them. Sure. I mean, I, yeah, there were a lot of people that, you know, knew me from those days. So that, that ended my competition career right there. I, I, that was the last one I competed in.
0: But wait, they wouldn't let you compete under your undercover name? No, no, no. Well, I couldn't
1: do that. Everybody knew <laughs> me by then. You know? <laughs> that would have been a little weird. I was competing competing
0: under my real name. Right, right. And
1: and there were a lot of people that sort of knew my background. Maybe they didn't know I was undercover, but they knew I was, had been in law enforcement. Right. So it was better that I, I didn't compete. We were still in the middle of an operation at that time. Hmm. So, so, uh and I was just told that your competition days are over, or you know we
0: we, we can't take this chance, then. sure, well, I guess that makes yeah. sense,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. so that ended that that ended that gig you know i just uh, but i I remember too, I was at a point where I had figured out to be i was a good second third place finisher, mhm-. I had a lot of smoking in third place trophies for kumite, a few for kata, but I figured out to get those first place trophies, you had to train like the guys that were taking them out.
0: Mm. And those
1: people, that's about all they did. Right. Joe Lewis's and, you know, that's all they did was, you know, I mean, they had strict workout routines, a lot of them strict diet training and uh you know, and uh, I was spending my name my nights at some bar drinking, so I Right. You know, to to, to raise to the level where I would be able to beat those guys, I I didn't have the time to do that at that period. Right. And I I remember coming to that realization that I'll never I'll never get there because I don't have the time to do what they do. Right. And uh, so that and that added to the fact it wasn't real hard to say, Okay, I'm hanging it up.
0: Well, that's a tough balance that a lot of people have you know and I've, I've faced it myself, which is you have your career where you' where you're making money and then you have your martial right. arts career and you know right. how how much can you sacrifice from one to f- further the other? you know you still have to pay the bills right. you know it's not everybody right. can make their living on karate even if you even if you want to not and some people can't but not everybody can pull it off
1: right. Right, yep, yeah, it's, you know, the, the, those top competitors are, you were very dedicated, hardworking people, you know, they, they, you know, they were, they were dedicated to doing that, and making, I mean, I remember back in the 70s, people used to compete in two, three tournaments a weekend, people like Parker <laughs> Shelton and stuff, Artisan, it's Parker Shelton, I mean, those guys, They'd chase that tournament thing around forever to get honors in the USKA. Wow. And there would be nothing for them to compete on Saturday, drive to another town on Sunday.
0: Wow. And compete in another tournament. But, yeah, I couldn't do that
1: stuff. I had a family in. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, so. Anyway, I appreciate this opportunity. I hope it was of some interest. That you know, and uh, I look forward to getting
0: to see you sometime in the future. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, too. It was a lot of interest, and in, definitely, I'll, uh, if I'm, like, <clears throat> I'm up in Cleveland every once in a while from work, so I'll give you, maybe I'll give you a heads up if I have some extra time uh, yeah. while I'm up there, and then, yeah, you let me as soon as you're down here in Cincinnati, uh-huh. we'll we'll get together. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm in Columbus,
0: remember? Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm Columbus. Well, I, <laughs> pa- I, I passed through, yeah. I passed through Columbus yeah, to get to me. Cleveland.
1: Well, yeah, it's two hours either way, Cleveland or and having right. So, Right. But no, if you're in the area, please call. Let's we'll have
0: dinner. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I'd love to. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Don Sunny for joining us the last two weeks and sharing with us the details of his amazing karate career and fascinating undercover work. I have posted some new photos on the Chop Talk Facebook page, so please take a look and hit the share button. If you have any other photos of Don Sunny, please add them in the comment section. You can contact Don Sunny on Facebook, or you can reach out through the Chop Talk Facebook page, or send an email to choptalkwithnateengland at gmail.com, and I'll get you connected. If you like the show, please share it on Facebook, Twitter, and all of your social media sites. And wherever you listen, please write a review and give us a five-star rating. If you like the show, please make sure to let everybody know. That's the only way to spread the word. Thanks for listening. biru And mataya. Chop Talk is brought to you by the Kosho School of Karate's premium martial arts training equipment. Frustrated with the low quality of the big manufacturers, the hassle and expense of custom made equipment, or the months-long delivery times offered by the Japanese brands, if your order ever arrives at all, Kosho offers makiwara, iron sandals, specialty punching bags, and other premium martial arts training equipment, all at great prices and great delivery times. Kosho equipment is guaranteed to be high quality and heavy duty, exactly what serious traditional martial artists demand. Contact the Kosho School of Karate for more information. Go to www.koshoequip.com or email kosho school of Karate at gmail.com. Kosho, premium martial arts training equipment for the serious martial artist.